Hello, humans. The conversation that makes up the body of this episode was really, really long. It was a good conversation, but it came in at about two and a half hours. So rather than introduce this episode with a long introduction, I will just tell you that this episode is pretty extraordinary on a lot of levels. One, our guest spent a majority of his life incarcerated, which creates some interesting dynamics and creates for interesting lessons in doing what's in your control and accepting what's out of your control. This episode's also part true crime, so whether you want to learn something for this episode or just escape your life for a little bit and enjoy a very entertaining story, that is really up to you to decide. I think there is a lot to learn here, but by no means do you have to if that's not what you need today. So without further ado, I will introduce today's guest, Marvin Munch, and I will let him tell his own story. Hey, thanks for coming here. Well, thank you. I like to start this program the same way every single time, and this can be as big or as small of a question as you'd like, but who are you? Who am I? I mean, what do you use to get for something like that? The obvious answer to the question of who I am is I'm a formerly incarcerated justice advocate. I was sent to San Quentin when I was 18 years old and spent 41 years behind the walls and uh, was released in 2016. I, I don't think that question is ready yet. <laughs> I can tell you why I asked the question. Okay, I, I would help. I asked the question because I can go on to Wikipedia and I can read the books that mention you and I can watch the programs that cover you and read the bio that you've written on your website and devise my own mm -hmm. description of who you are. But I like to just ask people who they are themselves because to, to some people you might be a wrongly convicted murderer. To your wife, you might be a poet. Mm -hmm. And to you, you might be something else. And so I just like to ask people directly who they are. So there is no right or wrong question. I'll oh. fill in the blanks of what I think I want people to know about you if you don't, okay. if you miss it. But okay. I can tell you from my earliest um, awareness, I have always considered myself an injustice collector. Things that are unfair propel me right into the face of whatever it is causing that unfairness. It's always been that way with me since I was a child. My mother's a Holocaust survivor, so I'm the second generation of my family that has been incarcerated. My mother was interned and was liberated at the end of the war and brought to Yakima, Washington by missionaries after the war, where she was in an orphanage till she was 18. However, she was never able to dispel the ghosts and demons of this life that was robbed of love and nurture. So she was absent a lot. She was in the hospital a lot. And my sisters and I were stored in foster care for months at a time. I remember the earliest awareness that I had of how I felt about things that were unfair was in the foster care system. I was in some pretty abusive situations, and abuse always tends to create more abusers, but sometimes it creates a saver, right? Somebody that just wants to fix things. It turns out that I was going to be this person who finds the shards of the broken vessel and bring them back and try and make something whole out of it. I'm still that today. When I got to prison, I was immediately struck with this feeling that when the gates closed behind me, that I was naked and defenseless with no weapons to defend myself against this thing that was about to swallow up my life. There's this long protracted period of blindness when you go to prison and you grope around trying to get your bearings in this dark place. Eventually, when I became acclimated to the dark, I was able to see the place was a minefield of broken lives. It was overwhelming. 
they were asking me to take this journey with them and help fix things. And it turned out to be what saved me because had I had time to sit on my bunk in my cell and ruminate on the injustice of my wrongful conviction, it would have crushed me. But from day one, there was this mission that I was on and these people that were there with me. We bonded immediately and became family. I joined prisoners union when I was in prison, maybe two weeks I went to the law library. I figured it was a law that put me in. If I just reversed engineer it, the law would get me out. It didn't work out that way. So I met a law clerk there who was a member of the prisoners' union. He gave me some literature. I joined the prisoners' union in 1975, and I was an activist and an organizer for maybe two or three years. And until 1977, the organization lost footing inside the prison. It, there was some infighting in the Bay Area over union dues and other things, and it imploded. So I took the platform for the prisoners' union and married it to a failed diversionary grievance system that the prison had shut down a long time before. We called it the Men's Advisory Council. We started advocating from the inside out. We wanted to have elections. The warden thought that was a ridiculous contention. So we went to court, and we had elections. I was elected to chair the first council in the state. At the height of its population, our organization represented the collective grievances of 174,000 prisoners across the state. And that's what I did for most of the time I was in prison. So when I got out, it was really odd. The day I walked out of prison and the gate closed behind me, I felt exactly the same way as the day I walked in. I, I was standing outside the prison feeling naked and defenseless, unable to figure out what was ahead for me in this world that had changed so much since I've been gone. I also felt that everything that I was or had become was still inside the prison, like I had been cut off from who I was and what I was. It turns out that that's not the case. I immediately got into the criminal justice movement out here. Today, I'm director of advocacy at the Prison Reentry Network. I work at the Prison University Project as a program assistant. I'm an associate at the Humane Prison Hospice Project. All these things are related to trying to change the condition of the men and women that I left behind, some of who I love. I mean, if you think about the people that you love the most, there's people there that I love like that. It's hard for individuals on this side of the gate to understand it, but I will tell you that the tendency is that people want to take their offenses and reify them and make them an attribute of the person. They may have done bad things. They're not bad people. Once you've talked to them at an intimate level, you understand that they're fathers and sons and brothers and uncles, grandfathers. They are people who have fallen down in their life or perhaps have never been up. Some people are there because this is all they've known, sort of like what I do. It's all I know. There's some people that are there because this is what they were born into. They were born onto that path. It's one of the reasons why I think rehabilitation doesn't work for the most part because the book definition is to return somebody to a place of wellness or well-being. Most of the people in prison have never known a place of wellness or well-being. You're asking them to return someplace they've never even been. So maybe we should be habilitating people. And then when they stray, they know how to get back to that center, that point of habilitation. It's ridiculous to tell somebody to go someplace they haven't been and not be willing to show them how to get there. The first thing that comes up when you start digging into your story is it just feels unfair. You mentioned that you were drawn to a sense of equality and fairness. And so was I when I was in fourth mm -hmm. grade. I really wanted people to follow the rules. I really wanted to believe that we lived in a fair and just world. And we don't. You know that firsthand. Mm -hmm. 
your story from the get-go. You, you had a mom who was really struggling with mental health stuff. Mostly physical, but oh. th- there was that there was that component. She was a child when she was interned by the Nazis in the in the war. She was born in Hebron and then Palestine. It's now Israel. And her father had come from Romania, met her mother in Hebron, and she was born. Her father took her mother and her to Romania. The war broke out and they got trapped there. Eventually, her family was murdered by soldiers and she hid in a church close to the house. She was found by another family and taken in. Soon that family was overrun and they were all put in concentration camps. She remained in concentration camp until the war was over and she was liberated. When she came back and she went to the orphanage, she already had issues. She had a lot of physical problems and some emotional problems. She met my father when she was 18. He was a Baptist minister with a tent show. He went around healing people and stuff. I think that's where I got my gift of gab. When I was two, my sister was born and my mother and father divorced. She was left, this young woman, with two children and a past life worth of ghosts and demons pursuing her. She left Yakima, Washington and went to California with her kids. Did the best she can, you know. She had been married a couple times after that. Two other children, two other uh, sisters that she had from another marriage. It was overwhelming for her at times. She was by herself a lot. It just was one of those things where she did her best. Sometimes it just wasn't enough. She ended up with cancer at one point, which they treated for many, many years. She ended up having heart surgery and she had a lung problem that they had to fix. And so there was a lot of things happening with her life, physical, emotional, that conspired to interrupt her ability to be the kind of mother she always wanted to be. But I always knew that I had. So it wasn't one of those things that I felt deprived of a mother. I always knew I had a mother and that she loved me. So I, it wasn't one of those things. But going into foster care, the first home that I was in, the woman was upset because I was crying after I was dropped off there. And I was saying I wanted to go home to my mother. And she said, well, you're, you're going to be here now. Your, your mother's dead. She's not coming back. When my mother did come back seven or eight months later, I thought she was a ghost. I thought she was, I was out front and I saw her and I got under the house. I had to call the fire department to get me out. I was really afraid. They took me and put me in the car. As soon as I got out of the car, she was living up on Mount Hamilton at the time, drove me to this place she was living in. As soon as the car stopped, I got out and ran away. They had to go find me. They had a search party out looking for me because it was up in the mountains. There was snow up there. I became a ward of the court when I was very, very young as a minor out of control of his guardian because I ran away a lot. I was in foster care like I said, for months, a couple occasions, a couple of years, based on my mother's inability to take care of me. So some of the foster care homes I was in were very abusive. One, one guy used to call you over when he didn't like something you were doing. When you got within arm's reach, he would just knock you out. When you woke up, he'd say, take your ass to your room. So he did that to me two or three times. I finally took an ashtray off the table and threw it through the glass door of his gun case. He called juvenile authorities and said, come get this SOB out of my house. So I figured out at that point that if I can't run and I can't get away, I would just go off and they would get rid of me. So it became a defense mechanism for me. And that just added to the notoriety of a juvenile file that was getting bigger and bigger. 
I ended up in a boy's home at one point where anytime something happened in the neighborhood, the police would come down and get all the kids from this home, take them down to the police station, and put them in separate rooms and have people look in the windows and see if they recognize anybody. Every time that happened, they would make a note in your file. On this day, Marvin Much was suspected of burglary. On this date, he was suspected of assault. On this day, he was suspected of crimes against children. And this was like, I think I was nine years old. <laughs> so years later, when they're investigating this case, and they, they get my file. They're like, wow, look at this record. This is the guy we're looking for. This is the guy. There's no notations in there that lets people know this was the result of a juvenile lineup with 14 other children, and everybody's jacket said the same thing. It doesn't even have an outcome. It just says that on this date, this was your suspected of. When I was 11, I got sent to the, the boys' ranch in Morgan Hill, Santa Clara County. I was there for maybe two and a half years. It was basically children prison. Get up in the morning, they take you out, and you work on Farmer Joe's property, clearing out rocks and weeds and helping them clear fire trails and other things that they were doing. So you had these bands of kids out doing work around the county. I, I went to a behavior modification farm. Wow. Yeah, up in Washington, northeast right. Washington. <laughs> yeah, it, it's really not unconnected to mass incarceration. These systems, they're self-perpetuating. They create at one level what they need at the next. Everybody that I ever met in juvenile hall or in foster care, for that matter, every young boy that I ever knew, I knew later in prison. They just showed up there. They were there, and we knew, they, we knew each other. I remember when I was in this one foster home, this is when I really realized that I could not handle unfairness. There was this young girl who was a foster daughter. I was a foster son, and they had two natural daughters. I use the terms foster son and foster daughter loosely. It really has nothing to do with son or daughter. It's just what it is. That's what they call you. This young girl, a couple years younger than me, she wanted this doll for Christmas that talked. Pull a string or something, and it says something. So I think it was called Chatty Kathy, and she wanted this doll. She talked about it from, like, February all the way to Christmas. The whole year she talked about this doll. When Christmas came, she got this doll that, if you laid it down, the eyes closed, and you could move its legs and stuff, but it didn't talk. She was devastated. Then the two natural daughters got this talking doll. They were very proud of it. She was really upset, and I could not stand it. The fact that everybody knew, in my, in my mind, I knew that she wanted this doll, and why would they do this? I thought it was unfair. So I had to do something about it immediately because the crying was just breaking my heart. So I told her, well, you know, your doll is better than theirs anyway. She's like, no, it doesn't talk. I said, yeah, but your doll listens. So from that point on, every time she got upset, she'd set that doll up, and she would pour her heart out. She would just talk to it. She carried it around by the head. It had a bald spot on the top of its head. She would talk to that doll all the time. It was her favorite thing. When I knew that even if you cannot do what needs to be done, you can do something, right? I've always modeled my responses to things in the same manner. If I can't do what's necessary to fix something, I do what I can to mitigate it, right? If we can't get this form of humane treatment or care in the prison at this time because of who the current administration is or whoever, then I will try and get a piece of it. Most of the things that we did in prison with the Men's Advisory Council was very piecemeal, but it was things that were necessary and off the radar for them. They, they did not have a problem giving me pieces because they didn't know I was making a mosaic that if you just step back, you're going to see this huge picture that we created. I, I was able to do that under the radar for almost four decades. 
the juvenile record that you mentioned mm-hmm. is vent- is basically what led to you getting arrested is because yeah. one day a woman in town ends up dead, found mm-hmm. dead, and you have this record that basically makes you seem like a good suspect. Mm-hmm. So at the time you're arrested, just to catch people up on, on mm-hmm. your story, you're arrested, you go to court, and you pretty much have the thought like, well, the truth is going to come out that I didn't do this. Right. You end up getting found guilty. Right. That's basically how you end up in prison. Mm-hmm. It's not really something that's taught in school is how like nobody's taught how the prison system works. There's no middle school class on parole. So there's a lot of misconceptions. But even just watching that KQD program where the current DA is kind of standing by her work smugly right it's just so painful to watch she wasn't even born when i went to prison yeah she came in at the end trying to oppose my release yeah it was just so painful let's just start chronologically because i think when i cut this thing it's going to end up kind of going through the time so talking Mm -hmm. about your earlier years and then now this will cover the time of your incarceration but i remember i went to jail one time here at marin county jail Right. That must have been tough. (laughs) They call it the Blue Roof Inn. Yeah. I remember when I got there, I got arrested for trafficking. The person who I shared a cell with was there for disorderly conduct or something. So there's this huge disparity in what our futures looked like. Mm -hmm. He was like, I'm just here for a few days. And I'm like, I don't know how long I'm here for. Right. I ended up getting a break. There was a diversion program that worked for me. And, right. and help me not, I think the the maximum on all the, if I had been convicted would have been 11 years because it was like four for felony possession, four for trafficking. It just added up to some crazy amount, especially in that case, a nonviolent crime. And all this stuff that you're charged with is rooted in addiction. Yeah. Which is a disease. Right. <laughs> exactly. Right. I just remember looking at my soulmate and going, I don't feel the same way you feel. Because he's like, I'll be out on Monday. Right. And me going, I just don't even know what my future looks like anymore. Mm-hmm. You were caught off guard. Right. right. Yeah. I know the system wants you to plead guilty. And so they'll offer you right. deals. It makes it easier for everyone. It's less inconvenient. The last jaywalking ticket I got in, San, in the Tenderloin in San Francisco, mm-hmm. they said, if you plead guilty, you pay 20 bucks. If you plead non-guilty and you're found guilty, you pay 200. I wanted to contest this jaywalking ticket because I thought it wasn't right. right. They said it was a, a crime to walk across the street while it's still counting down. I, I didn't think that was obvious or displayed correctly. Right. Anyway, they're basically like, just plead guilty and you'll pay 20 bucks. That is a smaller version of what our justice system looks right. like. You didn't plead guilty. You're hoping for your day in court. When you end up in prison, I guess, could you just tell us a little bit about the story of you being this 19-year-old kid who ends up in prison and and what the the evolution of that looked like through the denial, through the acceptance, through the... Right. At the time that I was arrested, my mother was in the hospital. I had just gotten out of high school. I was basically responsible for the life and well-being of my three sisters. So I got a job as a security guard. My first job was at a belt potato chip factory on the graveyard shift, and I had a second job with that company at a supermarket parking lot in the afternoon, make sure people weren't parking there, weren't going to the store. And at the belt potato chip factory, they had a practice of filling these trailers up with snack cakes and potato chips and other things, backing them up to a cyclone fence adjacent to this huge field 
in the morning, the other trucks would come and take these trailers away to wherever they were going. So I only had the job a couple of weeks. During that two weeks, I hadn't been paid yet. So I was jumping over the fence and going through this field, which was like a marsh. It had vegetation that was neck high, that was soaking wet. The field was muddy. You'd get muddy and wet going through this thing. When you got to the other side, you'd jump over the fence between the truck and the fence. You could open up the back and then throw a case or two of whatever was in there over the fence and take it back through the field, again, troshing through the marsh, and put it in your car. I did it two or three different times. Every time I did it, I would get wet and muddy, and I'd take my shoes off when I got home and put them on the back porch, and I'd have another pair that had been cleaned up or that were ready to wear. I would put those on the next day and get around to cleaning up those shoes later. So that happened two or three different times. Uh, I would get home from work. I would take a nap. I would get up, go to my second job in the afternoon. On the way home from that job in the afternoon, I would always stop at this park that was right down the street from my house, and I would see this girl named Linda and talk to her and then go home, check on the girls, and then go to Livermore and see my girlfriend. I know. I was 18 years old, and I really wasn't a scandalous guy, but I had a uniform, and I had a 62 Lincoln Continental. I left my job to go home, and I stopped at the park to see Linda, and she wasn't there. So on the way back to my car, I see this other young girl, a friend of hers, and I said, have you seen Linda? She says, yeah, she's at the basketball court. So we walk back to the back basketball court. She's not there. She's gone. So I go back to my car. I'm out of my car 10 minutes tops. When I get back to my car, there's a, a policewoman in her car behind my car writing something down in a little book. So I get in my car and drive off. I, she starts following me. I'm going, oh, my God. They're going to take my car. I don't have a license. I don't have registration. I just bought this car from a coworker at the security company. They're going to take my car, and I'm not going to be able to work. So I'm freaking out. I look up in my mirror, and she's gone. Car's gone. Turns out that she got called to an armed robbery and broke off her following me and went to that. I went home. I was very nervous. I thought maybe... She went around the other way to try and get me and block me off. So I'm looking out the window trying to figure out if she's driving around the neighborhood looking for me. So I end up going to Livermore and forget about it. The next morning, the girl that I had asked, have you seen Linda, is found dead in the park. There's witnesses that said they saw her talking to a young guy in a uniform. Me. The policewoman called my car in when I pulled off. At 5.36, I left the park. 5.36, I leave the park. Years later, it turns out to be very important that she memorialized the, t the time I left the park because it turns out that 41 years later, we, we know that she was actually killed by the boy she broke up with the day before. And, uh, who also ended up on death who, row. He's on yeah. death row for, he became a serial killer in his later life. While I was doing time for the first crime that he, well, maybe the second crime that he committed, he was out killing people. So he ended up on death row in 2000, or in 1999. In 2000, a guy named Carlton Smith wrote a book about the serial killer, and it was called Hunting Evil. Carlton Smith wrote this book called Hunting Evil. While he's researching the book, he found the evidence that showed it was indeed the subject of his book that committed the crime that I was in prison for. So he sends it to my old public defender, who eventually gets it to these people at the Innocence Project at Golden Gate University, who take my case, and they represent me for quite a bit of time. End up running out of money. Morrison and Forrester in San Francisco took over my case. They spent over a million dollars. They ended up passing my case on to the USC Post-Conviction Justice Project in Los Angeles. They eventually got me out. 
this lady who was following me in the car, in a police car, she comes back to work after being sick for two weeks and they're talking about this murder at the park. She goes, you know, I saw a car there that day. She gets her book out. She goes, this one right here, this, this car. So I just bought the car. It hadn't registered it yet. So they're looking for this car. They put an ad in the paper saying anybody knows an individual with this car with a uniform, call us. He may be a, a material witness. So my sister ends up calling the police and saying, yeah, that's my brother. You know, he knows something. He doesn't even know it. They come to the house with a search warrant and serve this 14-year-old girl with a search warrant. They search my house. The victim in this case was beaten and drowned in a creek next to the park. So they're searching the house. And they find these muddy boots on the back porch. They say, oh, muddy boots. There it is right here. So they take these Tony Lama cowboy boots. They put them in an evidence bag, and they take them away with a bunch of other stuff from our house. They put a warrant out for me. They end up arresting me, putting me in jail. And my sister, feeling responsible for my arrest, attempts to commit suicide, and they put her in juvenile hall. Several weeks into my arrest and them building the case, they had already talked to her when they searched the house and said, has he ever come home wet and muddy? And she says, yeah on more than one occasion. So they just cut the last part of that off and made her statement that I'd come home wet and muddy. So they wanted her to testify and they took her, put her in juvenile hall. One night they came to her and said, we're going to move you because somebody's going to try and do something to you. They took her out of juvenile hall, this minor, put her in the home of the district attorney's investigator where she stayed for months until the trial. My public defender was trying to talk to her the whole time. They wouldn't let him have access to where she was or talk to her. The whole time she was in this home as a foster child. Imagine that, that a witness in a murder trial being housed in the home of the prosecutorial team. They're, they're talking to her every day, right? And making assurances, yeah, when, when this is over, you're going to stay here. You're going to be part of our family. And taking her out on family outings and other things. Years later, when they did the documentary, she said that she felt that what they did during that time had actually altered how she remembered things, you know. This, they groomed her. Right, yeah. sure. And so, but she still never said when she got on the stand that I came home on that day or anywhere close to that day. She just said, yeah, he's he had come home wet and muddy and was very nervous on more than one occasion, but that she does remember that I came home at one point nervous and was looking out the window. It was because I was followed by a policewoman that I thought was going to take my car away. But we find out going forward that I had left the park at 536, which was memorialized by this woman's radio call. We now know about Steve and Linda Huntoon, a couple that lived next to the park, who were having dinner at 7 o'clock the day of the murder, that they heard this scream that was so concerning that they left their table and went out front of their house to see if somebody got hit by a car. There was nothing there, so they went back and finished their dinner. The next morning, the body of this girl was found about 30 feet from their backyard. They had actually heard the crime. At that time, I was already in Livermore with my girlfriend, miles and miles away from the scene of the crime. Is that We already know I left at 536 hours before the murder. They actually had surveillance video at a convenience store that showed me in my uniform at the store in Livermore around that time. It was maybe 645. It wasn't quite 7 o'clock. We never got that video. We never knew about it. Carlton Smith found out about this stuff. We didn't know about it. That's the author? Yeah. My public defender during the trial told me that he wanted me to cut my hair, and I told him, no, I wasn't going to cut my hair, because I was so sure I was going to get out of jail and be found not guilty that when I walked out of jail, I wanted to have the hair that the girls liked. 
I was ultimately convicted of the murder based on the fact that I was seen talking to the victim that day at the park, along with two dozen other people. The fact that I had muddy boots on my back porch, which I thought was a non-issue because the footprints at the scene showed that the perpetrator was wearing Converse All-Star tennis shoes and that his footprints or her footprints were over and under the footprints of the victim showed that they were in this protracted struggle back and forth. So they knew whoever committed this crime was wearing tennis shoes. I didn't care that they had these muddy boots sitting on a table at the trial. I just didn't care because to me, it was not an issue that implicated me in any part of that crime scene. My footprints were nowhere around that crime scene. You have to leave the park, leave the trail that leads to the park and go down an embankment into a creek area where this crime scene was. I had never been down there ever. Everybody that went to that park, we all would park our cars or if we had a bicycle, we would ride it down this path. But if you were in a car, you would park your car and walk down this path that went behind these houses. It was a shortcut to the park. And down in the creek area, there was a hangout that young teenagers would go down into the creek area and smoke. Because if you're in the park, there was houses all around the park and the parents could see the park and see you smoking. So you would have to go down in the creek area to smoke. So that's where they all hung out. This is where the crime was committed. I'd never been there, ever. A lot of the evidence that would have maybe persuaded the jury was withheld. And there's even a jury member who was former law enforcement. Years later, when they did a documentary and they told him, did you know that they took his sister and put him in this prosecutor's house? He said, no. He said, my God, had we known that, it maybe would have changed everything, right? For whatever reason, after that, the next scene they had with him, he says, I'm convinced that he's guilty. It was 1974. It was a horrible crime. Somebody was going to pay for it. This was not a DNA case. This was somebody who was personally enraged with this victim, humiliated the body afterwards, left it out, displayed, this is what you deserve. I did look into it a bit in later years. I wanted to know why that would happen because I saw it in a criminology report associated with the case that the person had humiliated the body. And I'm like, what is that? Later, when I had access to that type of research, I did look it up. And it, it seems it's a, it's a thing, right? It happens a lot when people are personally enraged with somebody that even after the person is dead, they will humiliate that person by leaving them out in the middle of a road or somewhere where people can see them. That's what's happened with this case. And over the years, little bits and pieces of what happened that day came to the surface, but nobody was ever able to collect it all like Carlton Smith did. He did a really good job. So in 2000, I get contacted by my public defender that represented me and said, this guy is asking for access to your file, your crime scene photos and all that. He told me why, and I said, well, go ahead. He gave him everything, and this guy was able to finish his research and came up with all of this stuff. We found hundreds of documents that were never turned over. My public defender said, I haven't seen 75% of this. 75% of all of the stuff that was in their investigation was not disclosed during my trial to my public defender. Most people like myself don't know, though, is that even if you get all this new evidence, mm -hmm. that doesn't set you free. No, it doesn't. You still have to get paroled, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Or since there wasn't enough for like a new trial, there's just, right. just enough, but not quite enough. Right. You have to get paroled. Right. And the parole process goes something like you have to get the parole board to agree. Mm -hmm. But if you're claiming innocence, it's nearly impossible mm -hmm. to get paroled because I guess part of the perceived rehabilitation is they want you to feel remorseful for what you've done. Mm -hmm. But if you're not remorseful because you haven't done it, 
Right. It's nearly impossible. Then if you get approved to get paroled at the time, you had to get the governor to sign off. And exactly. Schwarzenegger said right. no. Right. I went to the board 22 times. When the Innocence Project took my case, Morrison and Forrester took my case. We filed writs in the third division of the First Appellate District. The First Appellate District is a very well-known Northern California appeals court, but they have divisions. Division one and two, three, four. I was in division three, and it was the judges in division three are very conservative. If you're convicted, that's it. You need to have a videotape of somebody else doing it, or you're not going to get any action. Now, remember, they agreed to take my case in 2006. I wasn't released until 2016, but in 2000, they were investigating my case, whether they were going to take it. Around 2004 or five, they ended up taking my case and filing all of these things in the courts. It was all coming back with zeros, like, you should have filed this a long time ago. This is, you're procedurally barred from, from filing these motions. So Susan Rutberg and the Golden Gate University Innocence Project decided in 2006, we're just going to do a Shawshank Redemption thing. We're going to go to the board. We're going to tell them everything that we have. We're going to lay out all the exculpatory evidence and see what happens. They petitioned for a full board. We had a full board. They laid it all out in a five and a half hour hearing. The board ordered my release in 2006. Two days before I was supposed to leave, Arnold Schwarzenegger exercised his discretion as governor to reverse and I stayed another 10 years. Before I even got to this point in 2006, I had 23, 22 hearings. The first 10, 12 hearings, I told them, look, I can't show remorse. I I have empathy. I, I do feel the effects of this harm, just like everybody else that's even in the periphery of this crime feels the harm. I empathize with everybody that was affected by what happened here. But I can't say that I committed this crime. They would tell me, until you tell us how and why you did this, you're never going to get out. So one year, I told them, and I have the transcripts. I said, fine. When I come back, I'll tell you what you want to hear. In my mind, I'm thinking, what does it matter? I'm already doing life. They're not letting me out. What does it matter if I say this or not? It's really a Hobson's choice. It's like somebody has a gun to your head and says, say this or I'm going to kill you. You have to ask yourself honestly, what would you do if somebody had you with a gun to your head and says, say this or I'm going to kill you? And you knew that they're telling the truth. Would you say it? Would you say it or would you say, shoot me? That's what happens in those hearings. At, at some point, I Is knew, that how you got paroled? No. Oh, you no, didn't have to. No. Okay. No. Well, what I did, and like it's maybe my 12th hearing, I told them I'll come back and I'll tell you what you want to hear. So when I came back the next time to the parole board, they said, are you responsible? I told them, yeah. They said, so tell me how and why you did this. So I made up this fantastic story so I would have deniability later. They are like, why are you lying to us? Because what I was saying didn't fit, Right. I said, because you said, if I don't say I'm responsible, I'm never getting out. They said, well, now you're a liar. That thing right there cost me 10 years. It's the worst thing I ever did to myself, ever. I went back to telling them, I cannot satisfy your requirement to take responsibility because I'm not guilty. That statement that I made affected me at the parole board for years to come. It wasn't until 2000 when this stuff with Carlton Smith came out that I was able to bring all this to him and say, see, I told you, I told you I wasn't guilty. So in 2006, when they saw all this evidence at the board, they ordered my release and Arnold Schwarzenegger said, no, no, I'm not going to let you out. I, I just want to clarify for people who are listening. 
It's not the governor who makes this decision. He has designees. The governor of the state of California in these parole decisions, he doesn't see these parole files. He doesn't read these cases. He's got what's called the decision review unit. The decision review unit sits in Sacramento and reviews every parole board hearing. If the people that are reviewing this, mostly ex-law enforcement and people who are victims of horrific crimes, don't like the circumstances, they are going to write an extensive letter reversing the board's decision to parole you. Then they're going to apply the governor's electronic signature. If you take all these denials from the governor and put them together, the signatures line up exactly. It's an electronic signature. Everybody in the system knows that this is not the governor. This is his signature. So in 2006, I got this reversal. I ended up staying another 10 years. Over the next 10 years, a USC Post-Conviction Justice Project and other people were working feverishly to get me out. Once the board in 2006 ordered me to be released, the Alameda County District Attorney's Office, a woman named uh, Joe Klinge, who was a young DA, just came into the visit. She started showing up at my parole board hearings, opposing my parole. So the district attorney who prosecuted me had written a letter. He was now in private practice. He wrote a letter saying, of all the cases, 75 tried before a jury, all ending in convictions, 75 murder cases that I won. This is the one I have the most doubts about, and you should let him go. And, and he even alluded to the fact that they had secreted my sister in the home of a prosecutor's investigator. And that if it were retried today, right. there's yeah. a... Yeah, he said, I would venture to say that this case would not end in conviction five out of ten times on the same evidence today. But I was a very talented prosecutor who was facing a public defender, and so I won, right? He said it's haunted him over the years. In the face of the evidence that we had, he now is like saying, in the interest of justice, I think you should release this guy. But this young woman was showing up from the district attorney's office, current DA. She was like, well, Mr. Taylor, who was the prosecutor, Mr. Taylor was in a very severe car accident and sustained uh, major head injuries. He's no longer with the district attorney's office, making it sound at the hearing that he was not mentally competent. And that's why he wrote the letter. So he had to write another letter saying, look, first of all, she wasn't born when I prosecuted him. Second, whatever sense I had before the accident, I had after the accident. Had nothing to do with my head. I was already in private practice. I wasn't in the DA's office when I had this accident. After the accident, I tried several cases as a defense attorney and won them. Do you have any idea what her motive was? It's, it's the same motive that anybody in that that they want to win. She doesn't know me. I didn't do anything to her personally. The fact is they believe their job is to re-prosecute the case when you go. So she came prepared. And the first thing she did, the first hearing she ever went to that she was involved with me, she went back and got my statements that I made to the board about being responsible. And she went on for several hours about how can we believe anything this guy says? He's a liar. So with trying to work your way through the parole system, first of all, this happens so much that they have a penal code section 5011 that says the parole board shall not require the admission of guilt for anything that person was convicted of in exchange for a finding of suitability for parole. And it happens so much that they had to make a law. And they violated the law every time I went to the board because they would ask me every time. And they've ended up telling me, you're never getting out unless you say you're responsible. So once you do that, then they wanted you to tell them a story. So tell us what happened. 
Well, of course, since you weren't there and you want to try and make up a story that doesn't make you appear to be a monster, which somebody savaged this young girl, was enraged with this person and beat them and drowned them. I don't even know how you sugarcoat a story like that, but you have to try and come up with some reason. So that's why there's a law, because you can't put people in that position, because that's what happens. Like I said, it was the worst thing that I ever did to myself, and I cautioned people. The whole time I was in prison, maybe four people that I knew, I used to help people with their legal work. There was four people that I can say with certainty that were not guilty of the crime. One of them, we knew he wasn't guilty because the guy that actually committed his crime was in the next cell. Everybody knew. He's the one that committed the crime he's in prison for. Everybody knew it. And yet... He was part of a street gang and he couldn't go and say, hey, that guy committed the crime because it was just not in their code, right? He's still in prison. But the other three that I knew, every single one of those three eventually told the board, okay, I did it. But we know with a certainty that they did not commit the crime. Two of them even told me, look, I'm just going to go and tell them I did it. I've already done 35 years. I'm, I'm going to go tell them I did it. And they did, and they got released. Eventually, they'll, they'll make you pay for telling them you didn't do it for 35 years. So you might get out five, seven, ten years later. You might end up doing 45 years for this crime. I, I think that I'm not jaded to the extent that I'm going to say that the process is completely corrupt. But anytime you hand power like that over a panel of men, mostly, to say whether you live or die outside of a cage, that power is very seductive. And they come to believe that this is their place that do this. And just like the district attorneys, they believe that they're the voice of the people. It's really not true. When district attorneys were first allowed into the board, it was because victims couldn't come and say how they felt about this person being released or not. So the district attorney's offices were allowed to come in, send a representative to say, this is what the people feel about that. But really, the people that they're speaking for don't know me. They've never heard of me. They don't know any of my circumstances. So it's really deceptive to say we're speaking for the people. What do you do when you get to prison and the, the cell closes behind you? Well, I was in prison maybe two days. I looked like I was 12 years old. I was this little Jewish teenager who showed up in San Quentin prison. People already knew who I was. It was news. People knew who I was. But there was also people there that knew the circumstances and knew that, yeah, this guy didn't do it, right? So I went to the law library early on, like I said, but the second day I was in prison, I was on the upper yard of San Quentin. There's a guy sitting on top of another guy, stabbing him with a knife that was maybe nine or 10 inches long. Every time he stabbed this guy, it would hit the ground underneath him. The guy finally looked up at him and said, you already killed me. He just kept stabbing until he was dead. Later that evening, the guy that killed him came to my cell front because I was standing there just staring at this. He says, you know, you need to mind your own business but I'm going to give you a pass. You need to stay out of other people's business. And he walked away. So I thought, I didn't know what he was saying. I thought he was telling me he's going to kill me. So for a couple of weeks, when they opened the cell doors, I would look out in both directions to see if I could see this guy. And my neighbor finally said, what, do you, what is your problem? I said, well, I told him the story. He goes, everybody knows what he told you. He told you he's given you a break, that you shouldn't have been paying attention to what he's doing. That was my introduction to prison. I went to the law library and I started researching criminal law and trying to figure out what it was I needed to do to do my appeal and get out of prison. From that point on, I was in the law library every day for 40 years, every day. I became expert at administrative law, especially. 
Like I said, I joined a prisoner's union. I created an organization, and we litigated against the state at every chance. We filed administrative appeals on medical care and food and education and recreation, all the things, administrative segregation and all the rest of those. We made deep changes in how they treat people in ADSEG. When you went to the administrative segregation, people had to get up and put their trays in this window where there was a scullery back there. They would clean your trays off and they would get them ready for the next meal. When you put your tray in there, they would scrape everything that was left on your tray into a bucket. And you had these slop buckets. And we would take these slop buckets and would pour them into these little pans and bake them into loaves and then freeze them. So when people went to add seg, they would call down and say, we have five people up here. And they would take out five of these loaves and they would bake them and they would send them up. And you would eat. they were called jute balls. That's what you ate while you were in the hole. They were nasty. They were unsanitary. They were just abusive. So we went to court and they had to stop giving us those. And they had to actually bring whatever the main line was eating. They had to bring it up on carts and serve it to you at your cell front on a tray so you can see what they're, they're giving you. We filed on medical care and it turned out that they ended up turning, uh, the prison law office turned it into these administrative appeals, ended up in superior court. And then eventually they were able to take, the prison law office took these cases and turned it into a class action. Jane Kahn and the prison law office ended up having the state of California put into receivership and a three-judge panel monitors everything that they do as far as medical care. At that point, there was 174,000 people in prison. Because of these orders from the three-judge panel, they ended up having to release 67,000 people from prison. They had no business being there. Mm-hmm. Young drug addicts and old people and crazy people. They had an old man that was like 95 years old and veteran who at least twice a week would stop and ask people, where am I at? And they'd say, you're in prison. He's like, I'm in prison. What did I do? So we ended up litigating to get this guy out to a veteran's home. I think the purpose of punishment and incarceration goes away once that person doesn't know why he's being punished anymore. You can't be so jealous of your revenge that you want to just keep torturing this guy twice a week. So we ended up getting him out. So these are the types of things that we did for 40 years. Like I said, I don't think I really had time to focus on the horror of the situation I was in. It was like every day was something new that was sometimes life or death for people. And it kept me busy. But for the most part, on everyday level, for most people, it's a very dark and abusive environment. It fosters violence. It creates it. If you came in a nonviolent person, you're eventually going to be a violent person because it's just necessary in that environment. What we did was we took San Quentin, which was the most brutal place in California next to Folsom. We started working to change the culture. And eventually, it really started after a very extreme riot that we had between the Cocoa County white boys and the northern Hispanics. We got locked down, and within a, a day or two, it spread into the other part of the prison, the dorms that they had in H unit in San Quentin. There was slashings there and it went to other prisons. There was retaliations in other prisons. And so they ended up coming to us to negotiate between the factions and we negotiated and ended up getting the prison off of lockdown. We had a truce between the two factions. And at the end of 14 months of negotiating back and forth between all the factions in San Quentin, we had a day of peace in San Quentin. 1,400 people from these various factions were on the lower yard for this afternoon, this day of peace, and they all signed this banner that we made, agreeing to live cooperatively, and we presented it to the warden. And that peace agreement has held up at San Quentin since then. We ended up petitioning for higher education. We have a college program there now, which is on its way to being accredited as the first standalone accredited college inside of a prison in the United States. We just had the site visit and the report out, and it looks like we're going to be candidates for accreditation. 
we petitioned for access to data processing courses and programming and computers, and we were granted all these things. And so now San Quentin is like a criminal version of Yaddo. It's this mecca of learning and ascension, right? It's like, it's amazing. If it could happen in San Quentin, it could happen anywhere. And I think it's a model for other places to show how to help these men find that path to self-actualization. If you're looking at restorative models, you have to know that when there's harm, everybody involved in that harm have to be involved in the restoration of wellness, if that's possible even. But you can't have restorative practices that just focus on victims without going to the other end of that harm and the person that perpetrated that harm getting included in that model. At some point, it's ideal if that can all come together at some point of understanding. They do have several programs at San Quentin that do just that. This victim offender reconciliation program that they have there. They have victims that come in of horrific crimes, horrific crimes. When they come in on a Friday afternoon, they are scared. They're mad. They don't want to be there. They're going to meet these surrogate perpetrators, these guys that committed crimes exactly like the crimes that they suffered from. At the end of the weekend, there should be some understanding. So these people come in on a Friday. They're there all day Friday, and then they go home and come back all day Saturday. They come back all day Sunday. By the end of that day on Sunday, they are hugging and crying. These men hear these stories that these people have suffered and they cry. They cry because they know that they committed this type of harm for somebody else. And then the people that came in to tell these stories hear about these young people or these people when they were young, what their lives were. They understand at the end of this that they weren't born harming people. They became these people that harm people somehow collectively, as a sentient society, we should want it to be so, but collectively, we need to figure out how does this happen. I often say that I'm really not an abolitionist in the sense that some people say, get rid of all prisons. I am an abolitionist in the sense that we need to get rid of the carceral policies that drive mass incarceration. When you have somebody like the Night Stalker, who's crawling in windows and killing families, or Jeffrey Dahmer, who's eating people, you have to do something with these people that are doing this harm. Something. But what we do with people once we have them is illegitimate. I, for one, and as a society, we should all want to know, how did this man get to the point where he is crawling in windows and killing families? What happened to this person? If we don't understand how somebody becomes a cannibal, how somebody becomes a mass murderer or a serial killer, it's going to keep happening. We need to try and understand that. So even as we incarcerate somebody who's done extreme harm, we should be working towards the societal well by figuring out how that harm happened. Because obviously they weren't born that way. So in that sense, I'm not saying, here we got this guy who's a serial killer. We know he's killed five people, but there's no prison. So what do we do with him? I want to find out why that person's doing that. And it happens in every state and it happens in every country these things are happening. And I can tell you that the mechanisms that bring them to that point are exactly the same. We need to figure it out. If we figure it out here, we figured it out there. It just doesn't seem to be a priority for us to figure out how this happens. We just want to say, oh, this horrible thing happened. And everybody goes, oh, yes, it was horrible. But nobody says, yeah, but why did it happen? You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, there's some really interesting science coming up, especially when it comes to like free will and mm -hmm. us as, as people learning more and more about what we think of as free will. And it turns out that you can build a pretty good predictive model of, of 
what's going to happen to people if they don't grow up in a two-parent household, if they have mm-hmm. violence in childhood, if they grow up in mm-hmm. poverty. And then, unfortunately, I think that yeah. a lot of our policymakers don't come from certain parts of the world, mm-hmm. certain parts of our society. So if you have a lot of uh, people generally raised in middle-class neighborhood making the policy, they don't necessarily understand what happens in poverty and how that right. can affect people. I agree that as a community, we have to decide what is the purpose of prison. Is it punitive? Is it for right. rehabilitation? Well, the courts have yeah. said that incarceration has four purposes. It's incapacitation. The theory is that if you're behind bars, you can't hurt anybody. It's not true. They hurt people every day in prison. Incapacitation, retribution, deterrence, that if somebody else sees you being punished, they're not going to do the crime. Not true. And rehabilitation. Those four things. Most of that does not happen. What happens is they warehouse people. One of the things that I talk about that's very unpopular sometimes with some of the progressives that I uh, associate with, and I consider myself a progressive, is that mass incarceration is a racial construct. I often say, while mass incarceration has its roots in racism, because the marginalized communities around this country are the feeding ground for mass incarceration. That's where they go get the bodies to put in those beds. Those marginalized communities are filled with people of color because of our social and economic biases. So there's a prejudice there. But mass incarceration does not care whether it's a person of color or a white person. You just have to be poor and vulnerable. If the marginalized communities around the country were filled with white people, prison would be filled with white people. You just have to be poor. And I'm a good example of that. We didn't have anything. We were marginalized. We were living in a marginalized community. My mother was absent. We were vulnerable. had no money. When I went to court, I had a public defender who was being opposed by this experienced district attorney that had all the resources in the world and had control of all the material that came from an investigation that they had all the money in the world to conduct. When there's this imbalance of resources and power and influence, then this is what happens. It had nothing to do with whether I was white or whether if I was a person of color, it didn't have anything to do with that. So when we're trying to look for a solution to what's happening It's a diversion when you say, well, let's attack this at this level. You have to follow the money. In California, this last fiscal year ending in July, Californians spent $18 billion running 35 prisons. $18 billion. They're on track to spend $20 billion this year to run 35 prisons in California. It is socioeconomic. This whole system, in in 1852, they built San Quentin, first prison in California. Between 1852 and 1984, 130 plus years, they built 11 prisons and there was 26,000 people in prison. When the Cold War ended and people were flowing out of the military economy into the civilian sector, they were closing bases. They had to figure out how to replace that lost economy that closed down at the end of the Cold War. So they started this rhetoric of war on fill in the blanks, guns, violence, drugs, black people, whatever. This war that they started on all these things. In 1984, they started building prisons. Between 84 and 94, they built 22 prisons, and they went to 174,000 people in prison. They seamlessly replaced that lost economy with a correctional economy that's second only to agriculture in California. How many prisoners are there today in California? Because of the lawsuits that I told you about that we were filing administrative grievances on our medical care and stuff, and then eventually the prison law office represented us in federal court on a class action suit on our medical care. The three-judge panel determined that there was too many people in prison. They could not sustain the standard medical care that was required for humane treatment. They ordered them to reduce their population. They went from 174,000 people to 
112,000 people in prison. They had to release 67, 68,000 people from prison. They did it over a five-year period. So there's about 112 to 120,000 people right now in prison still in California. I could walk through any prison in California and two-thirds of the people that are in prison, we should be diverting into other things. Those beds should be for people you're scared of, not people you're mad at. If you have an addiction disease, if your crime is a petty crime, you should not be in prison. I think anywhere from seventy-eight dollars to $92,000 a year to keep somebody in one of those beds, depending on the prison you're in. And you're getting no return on your correctional investment whatsoever. Guys are coming out of prison, not the lifers, the guys who do life and they finally get out. Less than 1% of 1% ever get any kind of negative contact with law enforcement again. 99.99% go fade off into the distance and you never see them again. And none of them commit new crimes that cause them to go back for a life sentence. The other people, the majority of people that leave prison, and there's there's 10,000 people a month leaving prison in California, 67% of those people are going to be back in prison within three years. So we're paying them $18 billion to fail 67% of the time. If you went to a car dealership and 67% of the cars that they worked on did not run when they were done, they would go out of business. And yet we have the California taxpayers paying this system $18 billion to fail 67% of the time. People have to ask, where's the return on my correctional investment? It surely can't be all about revenge. Even the staunchest law and order kind of person has to say that there must be some purpose to what we're doing, especially when you're spending that kind of money. So, you know, I'm going to tell you the Prisoner Reentry Network partners with a organization called Bonafide. The former prisoner and his wife developed this, this organization. We go to the front gate of the prison and we pick people up that have done decades. We give them a smartphone. We take them to Target, get them out of their parole clothes, get them into some regular clothes, take them to breakfast, and then we get them to wherever they're supposed to be paroling to, whatever city that is. We try to have somebody hang with them as a navigator for six months because they have been out and they need to get their ID. How does this DMV thing work and how does this social security thing work and all of this? They help them with all that. These guys that we expend this resource with do not go back to prison. So if they were to repurpose just a piece of that $18 billion to this side of the gate, when these guys are leaving, they could cut their recidivism rate by two-thirds. They could cut it because all these guys need is a little bit of assistance when they get out. They have to have a phone. I was a consulting on a project called the Homecoming Project, Impact Justice in Oakland, California. It takes guys coming out of prison and partners them with a community host that's willing to house them in a living space the host gets a daily stipend to house this parolee. It's a way to get around the private prison companies that are doing reentry housing right now. The money that these hosts get goes directly into the community in West Oakland and East Oakland. The introduction to the community for the person coming out of prison is a true reintroduction. That person immediately inherits that host's friends, neighbors, the church. It's a true reintroduction to the community. But we had to go out and do a survey to figure out how many people in Oakland and in San Francisco who are living in tents on the streets are formerly incarcerated. After two and a half months of knocking on tent doors and talking to people, I was able to say that 78% of the people that I talked to, men, were incarcerated directly before becoming homeless. And 50% of the women, 49.6 or something of the women, 
were incarcerated directly before becoming homeless. The rest of that is mental health and drug addiction. So if you're interested in impacting homelessness, then you should be desirous of applying some of the resources you're spending on trying to combat this problem to people coming out of the jails and the prisons in this country. If you expend that resource there, you're not going to have to expend it later on the streets at the detriment of public safety and health and welfare of the person that has to live out there in those conditions. All of this stuff, it goes back to that mosaic I was telling you about. Every one of these things connect to make a bigger picture. I think we just have to back up far enough to see what that picture is and where the pieces are missing we can find all the pieces that are missing and fix it. But it doesn't seem like because of the amount of money that's flowing through this carceral system that there's people that want to fix it because you're talking about their children's college fund and stuff. You're talking about closing down two-thirds of the prisons in California. It's a big industry. I, I think that the interconnectedness of everything is apparent at any level, whether you're talking about children who are adrift in this juvenile justice system to the people who are stuck in the undertow of California's Department of Corrections. It's all connected. It's all the same. I was asked one time how I felt. Did I feel betrayed when I was a child? I said, I don't know if betrayed would be the word, but I told him it's like when I was a kid, I felt like I was in a plane that the adults took up to 30,000 feet and they're jumping out with parachutes saying, have fun flying a plane. I don't know how to fly a plane. It eventually crashed lands into a prison and that's where I end up. I've talked to a lot of young kids that are stuck in foster care. They all feel the same way. It's like they don't matter. They don't have a voice. There are certain groups of people that have no voice. People don't listen to old people. They don't listen to children. They don't listen to prisoners. They didn't, for the most part, listen to women, but they've kind of kicked the door in. You have to know that they are a loud and resounding voice now in what's going on. So we have to find ways to have these people's voices heard. Every chance I get, I try to echo what these young children that are going through the system right now are at the front gate of the prisons waiting for their turn. We have to find a way to have their voices heard and make things uh, right for them. And the people coming out, these men and women, they're there for the most part because life showed them the worst it had to offer. Humanity showed its worst hand to them. I think that when they come out, the least we can do as a sentient society is try and make sure that they get a glimpse of what's best about humanity. And that includes redemption and forgiveness. These are things that we tout ourselves as being above these people who we have caged and chained. We should at least be able to show that we have these remarkable capacities for forgiveness, redemption, and reformation. If we can't do that, then are we being hypocritical? We can't look down at people and chain them and keep them in cages. Then we're just as horrible as they are. I don't want to label people. I'm not really good on labels, but I expect more from the person who's morally condemning me. Maybe I should be able to look back at that person and see mirrored for me the values and the actions of somebody I'm supposed to emulate. But I don't see that. That's another thing that's missing from the restorative model that we're trying to develop. You had 40 years of your freedom taken from you. Mm -hmm. What do you want to do with your remaining time here? I look to the future far enough to get glimpses of what I think is coming on the horizon. I was in a prison cell in San Quentin in 2016. And a year and a half later, I'm standing in front of the assembled member nations at the United Nations talking to these people about criminal justice. I've been back twice to the United Nations. I've been to Washington. 
I've been to Sacramento. I've been to New York, Arizona, Missouri, and other places. When I was in that cell in January of 2016, I never thought that I was going to be there. So life is kind of surprising me from time to time. I often say when I go out and talk, the worst thing California ever did was let me see the inside of that place. (laughs) I believe, like my friend Brian Stevenson says, you can't fix brokenness until you become proximal to it. It's not going to be somebody driving by the prison with their PhD that's going to fix the brokenness of the criminal justice system. It's going to be somebody coming out that gate that's going to be able to tell you what's going on in there because those walls don't just keep people in, they keep people out. So somebody coming from inside is going to have to tell you exactly what's wrong with the system and why it's not working and then help you find the solution to fixing all of that. If I could have a part in that, I would be proud. I left people in there that I have this strange psychology that I carry with me when I am at an event or I'm sitting with my wife and I'm able to get up and walk into the next room. I feel ashamed and guilty sometimes that I'm out here and there's still people that I know still locked in cells. It compels me every day to get up and try and do something about that condition. It's my motivation and my driving force as long as there's people. It it doesn't even matter at this point anymore that it's people I know. As long as I know that it's still going on, I don't say and do something about it, then I feel like I'm part of the reason it's happening. So I, I think I'm kind of locked in at a moral, even a visceral level to doing what I do. So I think it molded me into what I am. There are things that I find out about. You know, I, my wife, is she is my guide and my balance. When she picked me up at the gate, it's how I know that what we're doing, picking people up at the gate is important because I told you there's this extreme blindness, uh, this protracted effect of the darkness. When you first go to prison, I found that when I got out, there's a second period of blindness. When you leave the dark and come back to the light, it's devastating. You're just not prepared for the sensory overload and the hyper-awareness that you have. When I came out, I couldn't be in a room unless my back was to the wall. I didn't like people around me close enough to touch me, and it was horrible. Coming out on your own is a real struggle. We really try and make sure that people come out that way, where they have somebody, a navigator, somebody to help them. David and his wife at Bonafide. This is a very important piece of this criminal justice process, and we have to find a way to make that part of the official process. If you're going to spend and expend all these resources putting somebody in prison, holding them in cages for as many years as you hold them, your job does not end when the gate closes on these guys. They're going to come back out. If you're talking about public safety and about right and wrong, then that process is incomplete when they come out. You have to be there to expend the resources and the time to make sure that when you bring this person back, you bring them back in some whole way. When we talk about a restorative model, when you take somebody out of a community, puts them in prison, there's a hole there in that community. Whether people want to believe that or not, that person removed from that environment leaves a hole. You have to bring that person back in some whole way. Otherwise, we start looking like Swiss cheese. So we have to try and make sure that while we're quick to punish people, while we're quick with our laws to exact this retribution, we have to also be willing from our self-appointed position of being the moral example of what's right and wrong. We have to do the right thing for people after we've punished them. It's just what the restorative model requires. If we're not doing that, then we're failing. Other people, most of them that I know, are people who have been through the system or intimately affected by the system, family members and other people. 
and some lawmakers that are champions of criminal justice reform. I believe that's our purpose. I think that's what I see myself doing until I can't do it anymore. So going out and talking and letting people know, seeing that there's a voice and a face to mass incarceration and, and to the justice process. When I went to court in 1974, they didn't have all of the mechanisms in place that they have today. But it still operates the same way. Even with all of the science and all the things that they have, people are going to prison. And most people in prison will tell you they did what they did. It's really not true that everybody in prison says they're not guilty. It's not true. They will tell you, though, yeah, they had it all wrong. I did it, but not like that. And not with that person. And I wasn't there then. The system will fill in the blanks that they can't discover with just stuff they make up. They just make it up. Okay, well, if we just say this happened, then that fits these two pieces together. This missing piece, right? We'll just say that happened. So the only way you can dispute that is by telling them, yeah, I did it in court. And that's not what happened. This is what happened. But nobody's going to do that. So they just get away with making stuff up. When I went to the board and this district attorney that convicted me came forth, I was being opposed by another person that was adamant and didn't know me and told me at once I was out at the screening of my documentary, came and told me it wasn't personal. And I told her, well, it felt like it, right? But the head district attorney for Alameda County, eventually, while I was going through the board process, told this person, you can go to the hearing, but you can't oppose. It's over. If you want to go, go, but you will not oppose. One of the last hearings, they asked this person, do you have anything you want to say? And she says, I do, but if I say it, I'm going to be fired. But she came anyway, right? There's something wrong with once you've been convicted and sent to prison, to continue the adversarial process into the boardroom is just wrong. That should be a place of healing and forward progress. I, I think it's a great place to affect victim healing. I think it's a great place for victims to be able to come in and on a restorative level, have the questions that they have answered and then help that person move on from that harm and that person that caused the harm to understand what that harm was. Through this process, both sides of this harm are going to go forward. It's not going to be something that they're stuck. We've had people come into the prison who were harmed 20 years ago. They're still in that same place. The people who came to my board hearing, they wrote letters. The family of this girl that was killed wrote letters over the years saying, we want this guy out because we don't think he did it. And they finally had to fly in from Texas and appear at my board and say, look, you're the reason we can't go forward. We're stuck as long as this guy's in prison because we don't think he did it. As long as he's here, we're stuck in 1975. We can't go forward. It was apparent to me that this process could be the catalyst for healing on all levels. But it's not used that way. It's a focus of revenge. And it shouldn't be about that. It shouldn't be about somebody who wasn't even born when I went to prison coming in and trying to keep me in prison for the rest of my life. It shouldn't be about that. Yeah, I, I don't know if I'm uh, going to air this next thing I said, but the way that the DA, the new young DA was talking was really, really concerning. And it kind of made me feel like, you know, how some people are drawn to being police officers because it's a mm -hmm. attract because to have power and authority is attractive to a certain personality. Right. Kind of raised some red flags to me of like just something fell off about right. the whole mentality that you would take from this. It's essentially your job is to try and act on behalf of what's best for right. this anyway. Well, their job is to do justice. Yeah. And if even if you believe that I was guilty, justice was done. I've been in prison for 41 years. Their job isn't to go and re-prosecute that case. 
Their job is to do justice, and their job is not to exact revenge, it's to do justice. Their job is not to be part of the punishment. People are in prison to be punished. The people who run the prison aren't there to punish them. That's not their job. I used to say that all the time. I would tell captains and and associate wardens in the prison, they would come in and they would just do horrible things. There was things that were happening to prisoners that I would have to go and tell them, look, those guys are here for punishment. Your job isn't to punish them. That's not your job. Your job is to turn that key and make sure that at the end of the day, they're in the cell and the public is safe. That's your job. It's not your job to be part of their punishment. I think it's the same way with that mechanism, that part of the criminal justice system. When you go to court, it's like this guy said in his letter, even though he was saying that over the years I've had more doubts about this case than any of my other prosecutions, he still said, I won 75 out of 75 cases and I was a very talented prosecutor and advocate for the prosecution. He had to say that because that was how he projected himself in court. It became part and parcel of who he was. So when you get into these adversarial systems like this, people who are tasked with delivering the motivational speech to the court, to the jury, that this person deserves the most extreme punishment we can get out of you, they do this with a passion that becomes their very personality. It becomes who they are and what they are. It is why you see so many videos. You go on YouTube and just look up police brutality or shootings. There's thousands and thousands of these people going on traffic stops and within seconds they're being pulled out of the car and shot. How does this happen? What? A broken taillight. What happened? How does this person, how come this person's dead? We've just accepted the fact that this authority, this power that is supposed to protect and serve the people, how this power now has carte blanche to do whatever they want. People accept that, oh, he's got a badge, so... Yeah, he shouldn't have talked back to the officer. Yeah, And I don't think it works that way. I never accepted that. When I was in prison, I used to tell people who wanted to help us inside, they go, well, what can we do? What's the prison? I said, well, the first thing you can do is let people know that this is their prison, that those guards, the warden, associate wardens, and all the people that are in Sacramento running the Department of Corrections, they work for you. You're their boss. You are their boss. If you want to know what's going on in there, they should have to tell you. And if you don't like what's going on there, you should have a voice in changing that. But people have accepted that there's nothing I can do. They're the police. They're the prison. What can we do? There's a lot you can do. Those people work for you. They're public servants. As horrific a history the word servant has, they chose that. We're public servants. Okay. You can be that. That comes with some type of responsibility on your part to understand that you serve the public. Yeah. So you've been really generous with your time. Oh, I can go on forever. I like to to end this way, except I'm going to put a little bit of a twist on it. So if I could hand you a phone right now, and on the other end is an inmate just getting out today who's lost and confused and really could use some words of advice. Mm-hmm. What is a short message you would want to say to this person about what you know is true about how to get through being human out in society, Mm -hmm. which is pretty hard? Yeah. Well, I do talk to people on almost a daily basis that get out. It's always the same. I tell them two very important things right away is do not try and make up for what you've lost. Just look forward and figure out without taking your mind off of what came before. Because in my experience, it's always been that... I look to my experiences for signs of what's coming. 
I find that my forward progress is informed by things that emerge from the darkness of my past. It's just the way it works for me. But I tell people, don't try and make things up. If you try and do things too fast, if you try and do too much, then you'll implode. The other thing I tell people is that you have to get your bearings out here before you jump into relationships. That's a really bad thing. These guys that are getting out that jump right into relationships, it's bad news. Unless you have somebody that's really knowledgeable about what goes on in there, maybe even it was part of the system that can understand what happened to you and what's happening with you right now and what that's the effect of, then it always goes bad. I give them my number and I tell them if they need to call about anything, One guy just got out. We gave him a phone. Within hours, he's calling me up and telling me that he's got people following him. He's got a list of license plate numbers of cars he knows are following him. He had like 40 license plates. The next day, he calls and said he was digging in a dumpster and found a cardboard pizza box that has cameras in the little holes in the corrugated cardboard. And these cameras were put there because they knew he was going to go to that dumpster. It's obvious to me that this is not a new psychosis that he has. This is something they let him out into the community knowing he suffered from. I always try and tell people, if you need help, here's my number, call me. And in your phone, we have numbers of other people you can call. If we know that they have issues like this, we try and make sure that they're hooked up with somebody that's going to help them with that. I'm not specialized in that. I don't know how to deal with it, but I know people that do. So my advice when somebody's coming out is to examine everything that's coming ahead and try and figure out what you've been through fits in with that and see if there's some way you can utilize everything, good and bad, that happened to you before to inform your forward progress. But do not try to make up this lost life. It's just too far removed. The fact that I always wanted children, I'm not going to have children. I'm 63 years old and I have two dogs and a cat. They love me. And plus my wife's daughter, she has children. And so I have grandchildren and nieces and nephews that it fulfills my need to be grandpa. I have friends that have gotten out and they're my age. They're having children right now and it's not working out real well. You can't have children when you're 60. You can, I guess, if you have the resources to do that. All of these things... You just have to figure out what it is. Be realistic about what you can and can't do. You're never going to escape the fact that you were a convict. I guess you could move out to some remote area and nobody ever knows, but then now you're hiding the rest of your life. So you can't divorce yourself from your past experiences. I tell people just to embrace that and know that this is where you came on your journey and that's where your path took you. Look ahead. How do you come to terms with the fact that you're a convicted murderer? Yeah. Well, the fact is that I told you early in this that I believe everything happens for a reason and I was meant to see the inside of that place. That's just the way it is. I accepted that. For me, though, I get angry about things, but I don't let it control my priorities. I could lose myself in self-pity and hate And then I would be mirroring the environment I came from. I don't want to be part of that. I want to be something that came out of a system that is so violent and dark that it is considered punishment to even be there. I don't want to be part of that. I've always held myself above that darkness. Indeed, there is this darkness that like seeps into your pores and gets in your bones. If you don't have a purpose, you don't keep one lamp lit, you become as dark as the place you're in. So I've always managed to keep that one lamp. It turns out that that lamp 
has the capacity to be a torch from time to time. People listen to me. So that lamp that I nurtured and protected for all those years turned out to be my torch. There was a reason that I was supposed to nurture that. So that's the last thing I always tell people is that you have to examine what is best about you, what you are most proud about, what you feel your skill set is, and take advantage of that. And if you don't find things that you find readily apparent, you still have your story. I think our most valuable thing is what we have to say. Our stories, if you look back at any of our cultures, going back to the tribes that we came from, storytelling was a big thing. That's how you communicated. And whoever told these stories was the person that was most revered. If anything, you should tell people your story. This is what happened in your young life. And this is what you became. And this is how you got to prison. And this is how you got out. And this is what you are today. If you do these things, it's no shame in that. I had a friend, John Irwin, who in the 50s, he did a five to life term for armed robbery. He got out, went to school, got his degrees, became a tenured professor at San Francisco State for 27 years. He created an organization called Project Rebound that allows people coming out of prison to go to college. The organization pays for it so they can get their college education. He was one of the founders of the Prisoners Union that I joined early on. And when I quit, he gave me the platform for the Prisoners Union. And I used that to create the Men's Advisory Council. He was a mentor to me over the years and guided my political focus. He came to several commencements for college graduation. Once we had college programs at San Quentin, I invited him in and he came in and he spoke. He always used to tell the guys, there's no shame in failing. Everybody fails. The trick is to fail forward. So as long as you do that, you're still going in the direction you're supposed to go. It's really a life lesson that people have to learn that you can't be ashamed of your failures. As long as when you tell the story, you have this ending that's going in the direction that you're expected to go. I try and make sure that the guys that we're shepherding and that we're trying to help step out the gates and not look back, we're trying to help them understand that this is just part of their story and it's valuable. So we have a group of people that when we have events that we ask to come and talk and they come and talk, they tell their story. Whenever we tell our story to the right people in the right way, we get a lot of this where people will put their hand over their chest while you're talking. My wife calls it the salute. She'll say, did you get any salutes tonight? I go, yeah. I think if you talk to people at an emotional level, if you talk to that emotional center, they remember it and they feel it and they understand it. You can talk this dry intellectual language all you want and people just try and store that wherever they store data. But if you can talk to their heart as human beings, I think it's a valuable thing. And if you can learn how to do that, there is no shame in the fact that you failed as long as you understand that it was a failure and that it was something that you can use now to make sure that going forward, it's going to be in the direction that you want to go. I, I do advise people not to run from the fact that they were in prison and to tell people about it because hiding what's happened in your life is not possible. You now are not only a citizen of the country, but you're a cyber citizen as well. People can find you and anything they want to know about you and the people you know at any given point. So don't run for that because self-shame is worse than somebody who is projecting their dissatisfaction with you at you. That self-shame is the worst. It makes you wither. It makes you stagnate and it makes you hide. If we can just dispel that, don't be ashamed because it happens. Everybody knows crime happens. 
It happened with you. You caused harm. You recognize that harm. You're empathic. You have a firm grasp on what your role is in a sentient society. If you want to be part of this community, then you have to be a part of the community that's not going to hurt other members. I think most of the people that we deal with that have been in prison for a long, long time, they come out here knowing that. They not only know that they've done harm, but some of these guys who were lifers, they come out with this gratefulness that they're out here because so few people were getting out that once you found yourself on the side of the gate, it was like you understand it's hard for me to grasp how for 41 years it's not okay for me to come out that no you can't leave then all of a sudden one day you're the chosen one you get to go the process is so amorphous and applied so subjectively that it's almost startling when they say okay you can go it startles you it does something else to you that is indescribable and it leaves you most people whose emotional centers still work properly it leaves you with that psychology i was telling you about that it's like why why am i why am i the one why am i leaving and how about these guys and so it's hard for me sometimes to understand that that there's still a purpose in it because it seems so random and it would probably help if there was a way we could take that life part off this decide that this is what the legislature wants for this amount of harm right when you go to the parole board they set your parole date they have a matrix it's 18 to 33 years on a first degree murder they have this matrix that says robbery, didn't know the victim, boom, 27 years. That's how much time you're supposed to do for your crime. Domestic violence, killed your wife, boom, 30 years, that's your time. So my suggestion was that because you have these boards, because you have these people that have absolute power over your life and absolute power corrupts absolutely, I, I think it would be best if the judge stopped sentencing people 25 to life. They would just say, you're sentenced to 18 to 33 years. When you first get to prison, the first 90 days, they evaluate you, they figure out what you need, and the law will say, if you have all these things we've told you to do, you need anger management, substance abuse, you have two children, you need parenting, you need to get an education. If you have all these things in place when you go to the your committee the first time in 18 years, we must parole you. But if you don't want to do it, you can do 19, 20, 20, 30, three years. And then we still parole you. But to say that this person, because he's from this county, as opposed to this person who's from this other county, have the same exact crimes, this one ends up doing 40 years and this one ends up doing 20, that's not how justice is supposed to work. If we're a nation of laws, not men, then it wouldn't work that way. But we are a nation of men, not laws. As I was telling you about the, the appellate district I was in, if I was down the hall in Division One, I, I would have been out a long time ago. But because I was up the hall in Division Three, I was my writs were repeatedly denied on the same arguments that would have won in Division One or Two. So it's really not true. It, it is all depending on who it is that you're before. So we have to see about fixing that too. That's beyond me. That's the lawmakers that are running this country and we have a crisis going on right now. I just did an article with the San Francisco Chronicle. They were talking about prisoner suicide and the reporter was asking, why do you think there's this spike in suicides? I said, because prisoners are like your canary in a coal mine. They're very sensitive to hope and things that impact hope. For most of these guys and women, their only hope is to get out through the courts. If an administration is stacking the courts with hundreds of conservative judges, then you've impacted that hope. And especially for lifers, it's like once the hope is gone, it's like I'm out of here and they just take their own life. We have to do what needs to be done to protect our communities, 
We have to do it in such a way that we do it humanely and in, in a way that's not going to inspire more violence and hopelessness. We can start by fixing the poverty and the abject hopelessness that exists in young people. They're born into these marginalized communities with drug-addicted parents and gang-infested schools, and they've never known this place of wellness that I was telling you about in the rehabilitative process. It's almost like it's preordained. They're going to prison at some point. Their father went to prison, their brother went to prison, their uncle went to prison, and they're going to prison. So we need to fix that. We need to cut off that pipeline, that food supply to mass incarceration. And if we do that, we can reduce the footprint of mass incarceration. Then Now it's manageable. We can do it in such a way that we can fix what's left. Speaking of hope, can you tell us the story real quick before we go, how you met your wife? Yeah. So we had wanted higher education in prison for a long time. At one point, we had federal Pell grants that would pay community colleges and junior colleges, pay them to send extension courses into prisoners to get these courses. The federal government, in its infinite wisdom, cut off the Pell grants, said it shouldn't be the case that somebody who's in prison should have taxpayers paying for their education even though it was shown that every single person that participated in higher education through the Pell Grant program and achieved uh, a completion of these programs, they did not go back to prison. So your investment came back tenfold by them not uh, going back to prison. The reduced harm that was being done to the community by these people, 67% of the people coming out and harming somebody else and then going back to prison within three years, all that was impacted. So they got rid of the Pell Grants and so we started petitioning to have higher education provided by CDC in the prison system. We eventually got what we wanted. There was back and forth with the guards union that thought it was unsafe and they wanted the professors to talk from the prison and we watched them on a TV screen, distance learning. And we knew that the purpose of the effect that we most wanted out of the program was the socialization effect of these men meeting people they never see in South Central or East LA. This professor and these students, these people they've never met in their life. We ended up getting these programs as a trial project. Over the course of several years, it evolved and my wife, this woman came to San Quentin to be a vice principal at San Quentin's education department to help put together the resources to sustain the program, build up the library for research and computers and all that stuff. I was the chairman of the Men's Advisory Council, and we overseen the entire process to make sure the guys were having the access that they needed to have and the things they needed to be successful. We worked for, for quite a while. We worked on these projects. In 2008, I was in a long and protracted lawsuit against the guards union and some other people. There was a lot of blogging online from these guys talking about, why are we messing with this guy? Why don't we just have the skinheads take him out? In 2008, I was attacked on the third tier of North Block and knocked out and thrown down from the tier. I was severely injured and I ended up in Vacaville in the prison infirmary hospital that they have. They have a medical facility in Vacaville, California. It's a prison, but it's a medical prison. I ended up there and my now wife was still at San Quentin and ended up going to Solano and got discouraged with the system and retired. She wanted to work with me on writing a book about the system. So corresponded with me and after she could come up visit. And the last five years I was in prison while they were working to get me out. She visited me on the weekend and was there to pick me up at the gate. I waited about eight weeks and asked her out on a date and we started dating. We dated for eight months and I asked her to marry me and 
we got married. We've been married three years, and she's really like, you know when you change the wheels on your car, they put those little weights on it so that it doesn't wobble, the wheels don't wobble. She's like the weights on the wheels. She's, she keeps me from, from wobbling. She puts up with quite a bit for me. Prison did a lot of damage because she was in the system, and she understands what happens to people in the system. Even guards and employees, anybody that goes into the prison system, it's true for everybody. If you don't have a purpose, if you don't keep that lamp lit, you become as dark as the place you're working in not just living in. You actually have, in some prisons, you have guards that are emulating the prison gangs. They have signs, they have symbols, they have colors, they have their own language, they talk to each other, and they operate as a prison gang. I'm not saying anything that nobody doesn't know. I mean, the people that run the prison system in Sacramento knows this exists. They've been sued. They've had officers convicted and sent to prison for being part of this. It's the nature of the system. It's the environment you're in. That's the last part of when we're examining this kind of thing that lawmakers should try and look at. If we're going to try and do something about people that are causing harm, we should not send them into an environment that fosters more harm. Anytime you have a system that comes up with more victims than it started with, it's broken. Maybe we should go look at Scandinavia and other places to figure out how are you running your prisons? How are these guys coming out well-adjusted? Because nobody's coming out of prison well-adjusted. My wife, she has unique things that she has to deal with with me because of my 41 years in prison that nobody else who's in a relationship out here with somebody who's never been in prison has to deal with. I'm aware of it. Some of it is receding into my dark past and I'm leaving it back there. There's still times that it affects me. It's, it's almost like Vietnam veterans. They came back from war and to this day, today, there's still effects that these guys have. When I first went to prison in 74, uh, 75, every single person that I knew in San Quentin that had a murder were Vietnam veterans. These guys came back from the war zones and nobody turned off the switch. Their first instinct when there was a problem was to kill it. Somebody's breaking in my truck, I'll kill it. Somebody disrespected me, I will kill them. Years later, they'll tell you, it's not like I made a decision. It's just that was my way of dealing with problems is killing it. If we know that going to war causes this reaction in the veterans, and today we still have people coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan, and they're in prison right now for killing people. I know dozens of people who came back from the Mideast, and they're in prison now for murders. If we know that this is what happens, then why are we not doing something about that environment? Why are we not having people out there assuring the wellness of these people that we're sending out into battle? If, if I had my way, we wouldn't be killing other people in other countries. But if that's just the way it is, then at least, like I was saying about the mosaic, at least we can fix that part. If we know that the, this psychological effect happens to people in battle, then why don't we have people there that monitor? monitors that and mitigates that. Same with prison. We should be looking at the environment in a way it affects people and doing something along the process that when we release somebody, we're not releasing somebody who has become enveloped by this darkness and become a mere shadow in a world of people who are flesh. You can't release shadows from prison because it's just too dark. It's hard for me to put it into words, but I know that the reason that we're having the problems that we're having with recidivism and all the rest is an intergenerational incarceration. There's a reason why if your father or mother have been to prison, your 
10 times more likely to go to prison than anybody else. And if both of them been to prison, it's almost assured that you're going to go to prison. The effect is higher if it's your father that went to prison than your mother. But And it changes between boys and girls. But if we know this, then why are we not trying to do something about it? Or is it because that's what's feeding the system? And so yeah. let's just let this effect happen because it doesn't matter. They're not coming from Pacific Palisades. They're not coming from Beverly Hills. They're, they're coming from South Central. They're coming from East San Jose. Who cares? We work at the prison. We don't care who they put in there. These conversations have to go forward, and it doesn't seem that there's a desire in most lawmakers to tackle that because it's such a big industry. So it's going to take somebody coming out of the system that has cares and concerns for the people they left behind that's going to be persistent and adamant about being heard, and hopefully the right people are going to hear and do something about what we're telling them. Thank you so much for your Mm -hmm. time. Yeah, thank you. Hello, humans. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Don't forget. You have a choice today. You can become somebody who actively participates in supporting the art you enjoy. You can do that by writing us a review on the podcast app, the iTunes podcast app. You could follow us on social media if you'd like and show people that we have an audience, which we do, but you also got to show it to potential guests as well. And you could also support us financially on Patreon, which is not just a one-way street. You get to be a part of our book club. You get to watch the episodes that are newly recorded in video format, which is my favorite way to watch episodes. And you also get to be a member of our amazing community and feel so good about contributing to the art that you enjoy listening to. Thanks and have a good day.